Now on the Boise Dev Podcast, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean. Difficulties that Boiseans were feeling have just been exacerbated by the decision of so many people to come here, to bring their jobs here, <laughs> to create a market in this region that is so difficult for so many folks to get in. It's our halftime interview at the midway point of McLean's term. We dig in on fast growth, housing, climate, and a lot more. Our deep dive conversation is next. This is the Boise Dev Podcast. Here's your host, Don Day. Boise Mayor Laura McLean, welcome to the Boise Dev Podcast. Thanks for having me. So this is our third time doing this, and we appreciate you coming on and having these sort of deep dive chats about all the things that are going on in the city and um, in your work. So welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Third time's a charm, I hope. Yeah, right. And we're So we're at the halfway point of your first term. Not quite exactly, but pretty close. Pretty much, yeah. And boy, it's been an interesting <laughs> two years in the world, uh, let alone here at City Hall. What are some of the highlights of your first two years? You know, um, first off, I do, I want to acknowledge that you're right. It's been two years here in the city, in our state, in our country, unlike any that all of us that are still here really remember and nothing that any of us anticipated. Yet it's been an incredible honor to be in these roles, to, to be in this role and to be working with the team of folks that I work with and frankly to be you know, connecting with and partnering with people throughout the city to meet our goals. And as hard as this time has been, I am continually astounded and deeply grateful for the fact that Boiseans look out for each other, stand up for each other, um, raise their hands and want to help when needed. And that makes this not only an incredible role to be in, but I think a really important and special time for our community when we've seen what counts, what's most important, and that we'll all, as Boiseans, respond to the call. And so when we talk about highlights, I can't even help but say that some of that's really a highlight to see time and time again Boiseans standing up. But when we came into this position, it was important to me to address housing that even before COVID, we knew needed to be addressed, um, to take steps related to a transition to clean energy and to ensure that our community was ready as climate has so many different impacts. And of course, through both of those things and a partnership to help grow the economy. So I'd say highlights from the last two years while, you know, I'd say that the leadership the city has shown um, day in, day out, and protecting people is important, and that can't be forgotten. But while we were doing that, we were also stayed focused on what we came to do. And we've advanced our affordable housing initiatives and programs by making the land trust um, happen, and we're going to be speeding up some different projects this year on city land. We've announced that we'll likely beat our clean energy goal for city government and have forged incredibly strong partnerships with Idaho Power um, and focused on building jobs with a climate lens. We were so pleased to welcome Azek and other employers to town because it's rising wages that will also help us address affordability in this valley. And then I'd say also the partnerships we forged with the governor, with ACHD, with mayors throughout this region are another highlight that I want to always be mindful of how important it is because it really is partnership that gets things done. 
So I think you provide a, a nice table of contents to all my questions. I won't ask it <laughs> again. We'll be done. Perfect. <laughs> no, we, we'll, we'll get into a lot of those issues in a little bit more depth. But so you talk about the highlights. Uh, let's talk about maybe some of the lowlights and some of the things that that didn't go as well as you'd hoped and that could be better. Yeah. You know, as I reflect back on the two years, there are highlights, but then there were also really tough days that aren't captured in the news that aren't captured in the advancements we make or city council meetings. And those were the moments where we had to make super tough calls. Um, COVID, I would say, is a low light that we had to act quickly, make calls that nobody wanted us to have to make. Um, but with that focus of taking care of people first and the belief that the economy would recover if we acted decisively, uh, low lights when the governor declared crisis standards of care and knowing that one city acting alone couldn't do what needed to be done to, to have prevented that, that we needed more leadership around the state and the region. And then, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a rise in extremism and I'd say a falling apart of political discourse and debate a change in expectations around the norms that are necessary um, for democracy to work well. And those incidences of vandalism, hate crime, I would consider hate vandalism um, here in the city were definitely lowlights that, of course, we then saw our community respond. But we can't ignore the fact that um, Nazi graffiti um, hate vandalism um, has occurred several times in the last couple of years. And it's important to me that we take steps to make clear that that is not okay here. You know, I'm struck by that. The, the Idaho and Frank Human Rights Memorial is unique in our country, as you know. It sprung up in large part um, in response to events in the state in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And while that memorial is located in Boise because it's the capital, it really is a it was a statewide effort, yeah. statewide political leadership of both parties, local leadership. Now we're having a I would say a spate of some some pretty hateful things, some anti-Semitic things. Yeah. Are you having conversations with with leaders beyond the boundaries of this city on how to respond to that? We are. And first off, I want to acknowledge that the you know back in the nineties. There were a lot of issues in North Idaho. Correct. And Boiseans, and I was here and I saw it happen, Boiseans responded. HP was an incredible leader from a human rights perspective. Others gathered around and said, we want to do something. And that memorial is incredibly unique. When people come to visit, I love to send them down there. And they're floored that we have this memorial and the only like public demonstration of the UN Declaration of Human Rights sitting here in Boise. And unfortunately, then that also attracts others that take advantage of the fact that it's there um, to spread their messages of hate. And for so long, many in this region have associated that as an issue in the 90s or an issue from North Idaho. And what's been necessary and imperative is that we recognize that it's an issue everywhere. Um, and it's a growing issue um, because of the lack of norms and folks being emboldened here in the region. And so I am talking with business leaders, with leaders of the faith community throughout the state, but also around the country so that I can know best 
what mayors ought to be doing, who I ought to be talking with, and how we create real action plans to not only send a signal that this isn't okay, but to prevent it in the future. And we'll be sitting down shortly with um, leaders from the faith and business community to talk more about this. And I have to say, though, that in these dark days, we also have seen that Boiseans know that this isn't who we are and it's really not okay. And back in December, when those mailers were dropped, I was wondering one day, what can we do right now? Okay. And to be fair, dropped in other cities around the country too. So yes, it's dropped not just around. A Boise issue, thank which you. I think is yes, thanks to say, for yeah. for and, and that again points to the rise in extremism sure. around the country, and the coordinated nature of this, and why it's so important that business leaders, state elected officials, and others stand up and say that this isn't okay. But trying to figure out before we had this meeting that's shortly scheduled, what I could do, because we needed to do something. And so the chief and I decided to go knock on doors where the mailers had been chiefly. dropped, chiefly, mm-hmm. and have conversations with folks that got them, that lived near where they'd been dropped. Just check in, do a pulse check on people, let them know that we cared, we were concerned, um, the steps that were being taken immediately, but also to hear from them what they needed. And again, it was reaffirmed, like conversation by conversation as we had them. We took opposite sides of the street and just went up and down the street that Boiseans were deeply offended for some people that were scared. And this stuff is designed to scare, that they wanted leaders to speak up, but they wanted to be part of that too. Let's, we'll, we'll take some turns here. I want to go back and talk about the COVID response. Um, Early in the pandemic, the city took a whole array uh, of steps um, in that sort of initial crush the curve effort. Uh, took some other steps into last winter, but we've had a pretty big surge in crisis standards of care in the late summer, early fall. It's tapered off. We're starting to see an uptick again with, with the uh, Omicron variant. Um, the city's response has been significantly less robust. It, it isn't doing as many things. Why is that? What's the thought behind that? And and why the change? Sure. I'd say first off, like we said from the beginning, that we'd be learning as we go on this. And so with every decision that we made, when I think back to the early days, we were learning based on what we'd seen in other cities, what health professionals were counseling we, we need to do, recognizing that we didn't have the supplies needed to respond to cases, and we needed to take quick action. Um, to separate people from each other. So we did those things. We then moved into a mask mandate following CDC guidelines and had that for so long. Once the CDC changed guidelines, we changed our own. And now here we find ourselves this summer, or I guess it was September, that crisis standards of care were, were called. And with Omicron coming, I'm still in constant conversation with the healthcare directors and leadership in this region looking at the data that our wastewater provides and the case counts and making decisions based on what we know at the time. With crisis standards of care, Boise acting alone would not have prevented or have stopped crisis standards of care. We knew that we needed to see a regional or a statewide approach at that moment because of the vaccination rates within the city and where 
the cases were occurring that were filling the hospitals. What you're referring to is vaccination rates in the city of Boise are, are higher compared to the state. Is that the higher compared to the county, sure. higher compared to the region? And so having a mask mandate only in the city of Boise would not have impacted crisis standards of care. But what we did do, and we were the only city to do it, was as soon as we saw the spike in July, which we knew meant that Delta was coming. We heard it from primary health with their walk-ins. We saw it next with our wastewater. This is always the order. And then you start to see all the other cases. They just flow. It's constant flow. Same order every time. We reinstituted masks in our city facilities. We reinstituted small group sizes in city facilities. We changed our public events um, to require vaccinations for larger events. Because those are things that we knew that if we did would have impact, if we did them would have impact. And what we did see because of that was that we're the one library system that didn't have to shut down since July. We were the city that could continue to provide services. We didn't see the absences, et cetera, which would impact services in the city that other cities and agencies around the valley and around the state saw. And so by taking those actions, what our goal has become has been to protect people where we can, and um, and ensure that we can continue to provide service. And in that sense, we're still leading. Do you worry about the optics of, you know, the the, the public markets here both, I think, kind of struggled when that happened. One, the, the one downtown left because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. Um, an outdoor market, and I'll just disclose my dad's a vendor, so I think it's important to say that, but an outdoor market, and they had yeah. to close and move to Garden City. Um, but you can have a packed department store full of people without masks, but it's something that's outdoors can't. I mean, how do you square that up? Is it because you're saying it's city resources that are required? Well, I, I, I struggled with that because I was like, why can't an outdoor market work that's sure. not that dense? But well, I can what go was great the- to see was that another outdoor market could work yeah. and that we put into, if we start making, there, there are places where we permit events and that's the nexus is where we have, we, where we have responsibility by permitting, oversight, et cetera, to take care of people. We're gonna have standards and based on the best available science, CDC expectations, what's happening on the ground, what we're seeing in, the, what we're seeing in wastewater, so under the ground, et cetera. And so we look to the special events permitting process as one of those places. And I really appreciate even the potato drop mm-hmm. figured out as did Tree Fort and Pride Fest and the other market, um, how to have a perimeter that they were asking us for a permit for. I think that was the, the problem, right? Was and, and, yeah. and require um, vaccination, pr- proof of vaccination or positive uh, negative tests to move into that perimeter. And so again, I've, and I said this to school districts and others, our kid camps, where we were taking care of kids, we were going to have a set of standards that we were going to follow. Where we were saying yes to an event, we were going to have a set of standards that we were going to follow. So the nexus would be the city is in some way responsible. And we didn't want to create a slippery slope of saying, oh, well, you're a little different. You're a little different. You're a little different because then everybody's a little different. And at a time when we saw a Delta surging, when we knew it was likely based on vaccination rates, other places um, that we could get into worse territory, it was really important to us to set the bar to lead and appreciate the partnership and willingness of so many organizations to, to follow suit. It was. The, it seemed the difference just boiled down to because obviously you you pushed for for mandatory masking in stores early on. Was the difference here? 
a store is is private property, these events happen on either city-owned or, or ACHD-owned property. Well, and we and have- you were more comfortable with the action there versus maybe... I don't want to say overreach, but a reach on private property was that kind of a so you, it was, you could require that in, in stores, correct? Right. And and at that point we were following CDC guidelines on masking. So we'd walk back our mask requirements. However, when we saw a spike, we said, okay, well, we control these facilities. We're gonna have a set of rules. We control the permitting process on these things, we're gonna have the same set of rules. And I look to businesses and others to lead in taking care of their people as well. So it became a decision of, say, a Macy's or a Y or others to determine how they were going to take care of people that were either employed by them or in their perimeter. And we were going to take care of people in the purviews that we had. Okay, that makes sense. So I, I was looking at, you know, is, I know you, you read Boise Dev, or I hope you read Boise Dev. And, um, I did a whole uh, bunch last night. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> um, but I was looking at some data, and we always try and, like, really ground things in data. And the St. Louis Fed has great historical housing price data. And I, I looked at the, the last mayoral administration. The median housing price in Boise went up about 7.5% per year. Over that 16-year span, mm-hmm. still a lot, yeah, but but not, but not like what we're seeing in now. your first two years, and and the data lags a little bit, right? It's it's we don't have this latest quarter, yeah. But if you extrapolate that out in your first two years, the housing price went up 24 percent in each year, yeah. I remember covering the race, uh, and you remember running the race for this office. Um, housing was something that was talked about, but boy, we were talking about stadiums and streetcars and libraries and, and, and to some degree, the, the homeless um, community. Housing wasn't maybe the biggest issue. You've been surprised at how quickly this has changed. And do you think that the administration has reacted in a robust enough fashion? So I remember that race. One of the reasons I ran was because I believe the city needed to do more related to affordability. And if you'll remember, shortly after I announced Brookings released that report on affordability and the need for higher paying jobs, of course, um, but for some more focus on affordability. And so we came into office before the world changed with that as our highest priority to address affordability. And of course, we had the world turn upside down in many ways shortly after. And the difficulties that Boiseans were feeling that I sensed and knew to be true from conversations I had with residents as a city council member, as a candidate, have just been exacerbated by the decision of so many people to come here, to bring their jobs here, <laughs> to create a market in this region that is so difficult for so many folks to get in. So what can a government do? I said in the early days, I wanted to truly use a housing land trust model. As a council member, I championed that. I wanted to see it actually happen. We've moved two projects through, 370 units are in production right now. We need more. And that's why we're speeding up our land at Julia Davis, our the parking lot next to fire station five because we did a land assessment of what land the city owns to look at. So we've done that. I said I wanted to address short-term rentals through licensing. That'll be on the agenda at City Council next week on the 11th. We have broken it down as a priority to keep folks housed. So we've 
strengthened and deepened the partnerships with organizations that support keeping folks in their homes. We want to ensure that we're using our land smartly to encourage housing at Boise budgets. And then, of course, we have to develop incentives that'll get the market to move as well. And we have goals moving forward of you know set number of units, 250 permanent supportive housing units to address the to address the unhoused. We know we need another thousand homes at, Bo- at affordable Boise budgets. So think firefighter, nurse, your kid's teacher, journalists, journalists, <laughs> our kids that are graduating from college and want to come home and get a job and live in the city um, that nurtured them. And so. We are sitting down in just a couple of weeks, actually, with the business community because it's bec- it's become now a point where the business community is saying, how can we partner to ensure that our, re- our employees have homes? So it really is an all hands on deck moment. I always wish we could move faster. That's one of my I think that's one of my things always is that, you know, how much more can we do? How much more can we do? But we've moved the needle as planned. Our teams have adapted and become more nimble because the moments required it. We're playing catch up on affordability. And then we have a pandemic that's brought new people here all at once. And so is there more that I wish could be done more quickly? Yes. I need partnership from developers, from the business community. Our city is open to ideas from an incentive perspective. We've tried a couple. We didn't see the results we wanted to see, so we're going to try different ones, right? So we want to be in that constant, like, build, measure, learn mode of trying something, seeing if it works, and tweaking it as we're going through it to get results on the ground. You talk about build, measure, learn, and, and one of the things that, that you didn't mention there was was what happened around Magurdigo, the Magurdigo Park site. Oh, sure. That was, boy, a, a, just an interesting thing to cover, this summer, uh, lots of different interests, people both inside the city and, and frankly, outside the city with, with concerns. Were you aware going into that, that the, that the trade was for land that wasn't, that was already encumbered to not have homes and, and that they've met, they met their quota and that they were going to trade you land that they couldn't put houses on for land that they could put a lot of houses on and that that kind of bothered people. Did you expect that all to go the way it went and, and, and what could you have done better there to maybe have made that be more successful? You know, it's interesting because somebody said to me once, it might have even been Justin, that, oh. Your spokesperson. My spokesperson. Who's in the room. Who's in the room. (laughs) That I will, I'm open to test ideas and then to hear feedback and determine whether or not it's the best decision for Boiseans. And sometimes that civic engagement model that I hold deeply can be messy. And this one, when we're in an affordability crisis, when the city is looking at how we can do everything possible because our residents are demanding housing that's affordable, more homes for their teachers, for their kids, for their journalists. If someone comes to me and says, this might work, I'm not going to not look at it, right? I have to explore it. And so I said, okay. There There was a long period of time where it didn't, it didn't, even finance would say it doesn't pencil, it doesn't pencil. I'm like, it doesn't pencil. But you get to a point where it looks as though it might pencil, and then it gets real in terms of really investigating whether or not the value is fair. 
And so, and that was the process that we were in. Of course, so many people thought it's done, it's done, it's done, but we had to explore it. I didn't want to do what the state had done, which was auction off land for, to the highest bidder. That was not a, a, a no-go for me. But looking at whether there was a fair trade, if we were able to require affordability provisions on homes so that Boiseans with Boise budgets could buy them was something that I thought merited discussion and investigation for Boiseans. Now, it turned out that you're right. Some of the encumbrances were already there, that the assessment came back. It wasn't even close. And that, for me, is when it ended. Like, it wasn't going to be a trade that was in the best interest of Boiseans. I wasn't interested in taking it any further. One of the things you ran on was um, changing changing the process, being more open, listening. And I remember that the way that kind of snuck out was the city put in, or the school district, I guess, should say, should put in a request for annexation and rezone that included the McGurdio parcel. And it kind of just sort of crept out there and the neighbors went, what is this? Which wasn't really a big open process. Like, here's what I'm hoping to do. Let's take feedback. Would you have done that differently? I mean, Oh, I see on the, I mean, the, the, the annexation is an annexation. Sure. For me, the, the issue was, was this an appropriate trade? an appropriate use of land. And that's where I wanted to have the conversation. That land is owned by the city of Boise. The city, the school district wanted to annex theirs. It made sense to do it all at once. So you were comfortable with the process that happened there? The annexation piece? Just the whole the whole process, right? That came to light really because of the annexation and then the neighbors starting to dig in. We started to dig in, request public records. It wasn't like the mayoral administration, you or your spokespeople said, here's something we're considering, let's take feedback, which the city does in a lot of cases, but didn't do that. Oh, interesting, because I remember that the Parks Department had a kind of open Zoom meeting where people could jump on, they shared information, they took a lot of feedback. Sure. Um, that was the beginning of it. Of course, it was messy. I wish it wasn't messy. Yeah. Um, but from an announcement of an annexation decision, I was comfortable with that from an announcement that we were considering a trade and wanted feedback. I mean, most of the time when you're dealing with looking at what's going to happen with land, the process gets difficult. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel there as though we were hiding anything, maybe because I intended, as it was released, to not make any decisions until we knew if it was a fair trade. And then we could have those conversations with the community about whether or not it was appropriate. Let's talk about interfaith a little bit. Obviously, um, on January 3rd, on Monday, um, Planning and Zoning said uh, that they were going to deny the application. Um, the interfaith folks have said that they're going to appeal, yeah. um, which I think everybody expected. It will ultimately land at, at city council. Um, you could be voting there. The, the council could certainly tie. Um, so I know that you're not going to prejudge anything there. But... Um, you know, how do you find solutions here, both for members of the homeless community and for, for neighbors who are concerned? How, how are you going to sort of get that to work with all these different partners and different people who have very sharp and different opinions? Yeah. You know, this has been a really tough issue for our community. It would be tough wherever they propose to land. And we have to remember that a low barrier shelter is very important for our city because it's cold outside. Folks need a place to go to sleep. 
We've taken incredible steps as a city to focus on housing first. We'll continue to do that. I pulled together that task force on this topic because I wanted to give community members, experts, others, a chance to come together to talk about best practices, to create some recommendations for the application, and then to have them move forward as we knew they would, as they have a right to. And how we make this work is the council, you know, as we look at the decision made Monday night, I heard loud and clear in the, t- in the, the deliberations that planning and zoning believed there needed to be more information, more requirements. Residents are concerned and they want to see more information, more requirements. And I think that that's really important that that be part of the conversation, um, that we recognize that um, these folks live in our city. We care for them with compassion. Low barrier shelters are important to ensure that we maintain the health and safety of everyone involved. And in these tough times, we've got to kind of thread the needle and find a solution moving forward. We've talked a lot about the first two years. Let's talk about the future a bit. I think the, the most obvious big question is, do you plan to run for re-election in two years? Most definitely. Yeah. This has been a wild ride. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> the, it's been an incredible honor. Um, it has been the most difficult thing I've ever done and the most incredibly rewarding thing I've ever done. I said when I was running that I would limit myself to a certain number of terms. I What was that for the that record? That was three for the record. And in this, I see even more so why it's so important that as a city changes, um, elected officials know when it's time to move on. Um, but there's a whole bunch more in me. And we've accomplished a lot in the midst of a 100-year pandemic, social unrest, and everything else our country is experiencing. And there's so much more we can do to finish that. And so um, I don't look forward to starting to to adding campaigning to all of that next year, Um, but I definitely look forward to continuing the conversation and continuing to serve. What's your biggest priority going into the next two years? I'm sure we've already talked about it, but but what is that, and and what's the what's the future mode of those of, the, of that priority? Sure. And so it's. I think I've told you this before. When people ask me one priority, it's so hard because I see them all as connected. I could say housing, but housing is connected to economic development. It's connected to transit. It's connected to climate. As I look at it, it is making good on the promise and potential of a city land trust by advancing those additional properties for affordability, building the partnerships, strengthening those that help make it possible um, to see a land trust really meet its full potential. And then continuing to work with existing businesses and potential businesses to grow wages here because that too affects housing. Of course, I can never forget climate because to keep our people healthy in the long run, to ensure that we have jobs and that we can afford the energy that powers our homes, we've got to be climate ready and mitigate for that risk as well. Uh, we know that you've been working on a big business attraction project. Um, we have some reporting to, to what it is. Um, what news can you share on that? 
And what might the timeline look like for people to maybe see more on that? Oh, Don, I think you know that I can't share anything on that. <laughs> but if I didn't ask and you were willing to share, that would have been bad on me. <laughs> so the, but, on, but I want to talk about um, job attraction in general. Because people will ask, well, why are you trying to bring more jobs here? We don't need more people here. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to that Brookings report in May of 2019. Wages need to rise. There were, there were industry areas that it was proposed that we, that we improve and address. That's industrial, et cetera. If we want, as more and more people bring their jobs here and make it harder for Boiseans to buy homes... If we want to change that dynamic, we also have to do everything we can as a city to create more opportunity for our residents because that lifts wages and will help it make homes more affordable. As we're competing now in this, as as so many cities our size are, competing in this world where jobs are from everywhere. So, you know, my neighbor could be getting a San Francisco salary and just fine in his home while we have Boise salaries, right? So we have to take steps from an economic development perspective to help lift wages. You know, you cite Brookings a lot, and, and I'm always I'm always interested in this. Brookings is a bit of a conservative-leaning think tank, not not very conservative, but a bit conservative. And you've cited them a lot in the last few years. People paint you in a certain partisan ideological way, but I'm struck that you sometimes make decisions that are somewhat fiscally conservative. Not always. And people will probably point this out and pick on me for saying that, but you do sometimes. Do you, in a nonpartisan role, do you do you sort of feel that push and pull between maybe ideologies or a left versus right thing or what people may think you are or or believe? Do you, do you feel that that pressure? Um, I don't feel the pressure, but I know it's there. Right. So, I maybe I'm a bit. I, I'm struck by what you just said about me. So I'm trying to just... I'm trying to well, you've made some fiscally conservative decisions, not all of oh, them. Sure. And you've, you've yeah. raised taxes and some of that, but the first year you decided not to. You pulled funding for things like CityGo um, and, and things like that. And, and you've done some things even recently that are a little more conservative than people might paint you, I guess. Sure. Is, is well, and that, and that I'd say, so that's the difference, right? My kids, thank goodness my kids are resilient. They, my son now has a habit of like making merchandise for me with titles that people give me online, <laughs> <laughs> which I really That's wish that the world was so laid back that I could funny. just wear it around. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, the And I'm so grateful that he does that because it tells me that he is okay, right? Like I know he sees it all, so I'm glad he's okay. Um, but yes, it's easy to paint elected officials as being one thing or the other. And in this world, especially in the last couple of years, we've seen that even more so. So I probably, there's probably media rules that say I shouldn't say all the things that I've been called because then they could clip it and say I'm saying it myself. But we all know what they are, right? And so, and so there's this painting of like, I'm like on one end of the spectrum or the other. For me, the, the beauty of local government is that we are closest to the people, we have real impact, and we can see it on the communities that nurture us, that we love so deeply. And local decisions, no matter what the legislature keeps trying to do, are not partisan decisions. We've got to make decisions that make housing more affordable, and you've got to be nimble, and you've got to be able to pivot, you've got to be able to take feedback, say that something didn't work, try it again, because we need solutions. 
it's not partisan decisions when it comes to protecting our health and economy in the long run from, from a climate mitigation perspective and making those investments. So in my mind, I, I've always said I'm a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. There, there are values that I hold deeply um, that I will, you know, expect that I will always hold. Although, you know, my politics have evolved since I was a kid. But at the end of the day, I'm a Boisean and the mayor of the most incredible city in this country. And I have to make decisions that protect the people that have trusted me to make decisions to protect them. And that really is um, the guiding light is how can I best protect our people today and set up our people, our community, our region for tomorrow. Um, and those aren't partisan issues. You talk about the state house. There's always a push and pull. The buildings are three blocks away, and and and. Sometimes I try to lean, like when yeah. I'm talking to the governor, I'll walk outside and just try to lean over. I'm like, nope, can't see, can't see the building really. <laughs> you could almost stand on your balcony, and he could open his window, and you could almost shout. Well, Annie it's, lives up there, so sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I know you're up there. Right. Um, <laughs> But there's been some some push and pull, especially over property tax rates. Uh, I was at the chamber chamber leadership conference earlier this fall, or I guess last fall. Um, you weren't in attendance, although you were frozen on the big screen while we all ate breakfast, which was pretty funny. Oh goodness! Yeah, really? For, oh, oh that's like awful. Nobody for, told me oh, that. Yeah, no, oh, was, I wish you hadn't told me that. Yeah, we didn't know you were gonna be there in person. We walk in and you're just like in suspended animation. But 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 <laughs> political leaders, speaking of partisan politics, political leaders in the other cities in this valley who are uh, I'll generally identify as Republicans are very frustrated with the property tax legislation that happened last year. There are many people in the state house who are very frustrated with the way the cities spend. How do you find a way to bring property tax relief to citizens? I was asked this question by Miguel at the at the taxpayers com- conference in December, and I was like, I can't answer that. I'm just a, I'm just trying to tell you what's happening, but. You have a responsibility to say what your vision is to sort of bridge this gap and bring some relief to individuals. Yeah, we do. We all have a responsibility to do that. But we also have a responsibility, um, the decision makers that are making these decisions, to authentically listen. Mm -hmm. And as a city, we have worked closely with cities throughout this region cities throughout the state, and frankly, other agencies to propose different solutions that we ought to be looking at. Because at the end of the day, there are assessment issues. There's, you know, the last thing we want to do as a city is, and we've seen this around the country, disinvest. Like if if you are creating property tax law at a state house that doesn't allow a city to take the full valuation of its growth, its current residents are then paying for that growth. And we pay for it by the gradual loss of service. And the last thing we want to be as we grow into a larger city um, is like so many other cities where you can see that disinvestment. Where my kids, when they're visiting visiting place, they'll be like, why are the sidewalks here so bad? It's because they didn't invest. And so we have to invest. And given that I would say our hands were tied last time around, we knew if you look at from a long-term projecting perspective, if we didn't take that 3% with the new laws that have been passed by the legislature, the city Boise residents were really going to sacrifice over the long term. So it was important to take it. We proposed 
addressing the homeowner's exemption. Um, I believe this year there will be some proposals to address how assessments are done, the difference between commercial and residential. That's something that we've floated. I am so impressed by Kathy Griesmeyer, who leads our government relations or government intergovernmental agency. Not agency, she's one person. Because she works with cities, works with counties, all the different agencies to really compile the ideas that we have to present and share with the legislature. Mike Moyles spearheaded a lot of this last time. Do you talk to him? Does Kathy talk to him? You're, you obviously look at things very differently, but do you have that dialogue? We ta- I haven't spoken with Mike directly myself, I should say, um, Representative Moyle. Yeah, uh, Kathy is in contact with all legislators, and then particularly those legislators that were part of, and those the ones I've spoken with were, were part of the interim committees. Sure. And we also recognize that you know, there are times when there are better messengers. So, so goes the region, so goes our city, so goes the state, so goes our city. So we've taken the approach of building partnerships with other agencies in the region and around the state. And then in that partnership, being willing to share resources, information, et cetera, but also be willing to step back and let others Um, be that messenger and leader when necessary on these topics if they are more likely to be better heard. So I know we've got a little bit of time. I've got two more. Is that okay? Um, Yeah, I'm getting ahead. Why are you? You're asking him and not me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I looked at Justin, your your (laughs) spokesperson. Do you have time for two more questions? I have time for two more questions. You are his boss. Um, (laughs) You've made climate a big piece of your strategy. Um, We saw a blistering hot summer here. We saw the seventh snowiest December on record. There's, here's me with the data again. Um, but this really pales in comparison to what other cities have seen. I mean, Denver with the or the Denver area with with the fires just last week. Everyone from Governor Little to Hollywood movies are talking about this right now. Is the city moving fast enough? Are you doing enough? This is, I think, really risen in a lot of people's minds because of the effects we're starting to see. Because we're now the feeling it. visual, yes. actual visceral effects that, that we all are feeling and seeing. There are many people around the world that say, would say nobody is doing enough, right? I look at this and say, and then there are many people that are saying, why is a city bothering? A city can't change it. There's an important role for all cities to play. And I am incredibly proud, if I could say that, I mean, it feels weird to say that, but proud of the fact that we've been acknowledged as a city that's leading on climate. So are we doing enough, (laughs) given that generations before us knew that there would be an issue and didn't take action, and now we have a really small timeline? Not necessarily enough to stop it, but what we're focused on is how we mitigate and then ultimately how we plan for a climate-constrained world. In the same way, when I worked with an investment firm, I'd look at climate risk in companies that my clients held. We're looking at climate risk for our residents who are shareholders in this great, incredible community and saying, how do we mitigate climate risk? How do we prepare for the economy of the future so that we can be winners rather than trying to catch up? And I'd say you're right, that in the last two years, suddenly it's become a thing that everybody's talking about because our days are hotter, our lungs are filled with smoke, we see crazy weather events. But luckily, um, as a city, 
we've been preparing even more, you know, beyond the last two years from the early days when I sponsored our clean energy transition goals. Now doing so much more from a carbon neutrality perspective, but importantly, looking at how we build an economy through the innovation that gets us there and how we beat those goals to set our residents up. So I always think of this as because people will say a city can't do it. It's a lost cause. Like, why, why are you spending money doing this? We have to do something and we have to prepare for the future because that's going to make it possible to have good jobs, affordable energy and plentiful clean energy um, and homes that can withstand the pressures of the future. And so there's definitely a role for cities to play. And we've been acknowledged from a national perspective as well as a regional perspective as one of the cities leading the charge. I'd love to ask you so many more questions. Um, and we'll, we'll do that as time goes along. <laughs> but what I'll wrap up with this, tell me the most memorable person you've met as mayor and why they're so memorable. Oh, Don, these questions like this <laughs> at the very end. I always do this too. You know, um, two people come, came to mind immediately, actually. So I'll talk about one. It was last winter, a little bitty girl. Like, so I'm not going to name her. She's a second, third grader. You can still see her. She sent me a Christmas card. And she'd drawn the Christmas card herself. She had the most amazing writing for this little bitty girl. Talked about, like, health and the actions the city had taken. The thanks. Told me a little bit about her family and what they were doing and how she missed school. And what she wanted to do when she grew up. And when I get mail, like I go through it and then I have a practice of like writing cards back, making phone calls if it seems like the right thing to do. And so I asked my staff, I'm like, will you get their contact information? I don't want to be creepy and like write this young child back. So will you find her parents and see if it's okay? And she came to lunch and her dad came and she came and we spent a lunch together And she talked to me about what she loved about her neighborhood, what she loved about her school. Like her hopes and dreams. And it was so cool. And it was right at a moment last year when like everybody was done. And it's those moments that are super special and I hate that I'm getting like this right now um, but but she was and I hope it's funny I hope this year like I was like oh I wonder because she wanted to start a Christmas card business I was like oh I wonder if she started that Christmas card business and we're going to hear from her but it was just like it was this really special moment where she got this opportunity to tell me what she saw in our city and then for me to be able to be reminded yet again like how important it is, one, from a young age, that kids have opportunity to like have their voice heard, but then also like that we step back and we hear that because it's a great resetting moment in so many ways. And for me, it was a reminder yet again of how special this place is and how people know it um, from a very young age and by connecting with folks that love a place in the same way, no matter the age. Um, We all have these times to come back together 
and to recommit to creating a city for everyone. Racing Mayor Lauren McLean, leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you.